I'm sure the growling of my children sounds familiar. It's the first thing Patrick did the first time we came to visit. It's about three and a half years ago. Standing there about where Justin's sitting and growling at Sister Marty. Brother <laughs> Parish. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, as we've been trying to go through our studies on on really basics, foundations. Um, you may remember from last week we covered a little bit of territory going from eternity past to eternity future. And I felt like that was really necessary to give us a big picture framework for how do we keep plugging on. Because we've spent several weeks looking at just what God has revealed about Himself. His various attributes and how He's unique, He's eternal, He's sovereign, He's immortal or unchanging. Everything He does is just. All of His works are perfect. Um, And the next verse in that song that we're talking about is God sent His Son. And so I feel like we had to answer a lot of those questions about why did He send His Son? When did He send His Son? And how did that look like throughout Scripture? And so I know that was a broad brushstroke and probably too much to take in, kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant, right? And so what I really want to do today is zoom back in and just focus on what an aspect of God that we don't like to really think about. One that's hard. Um, in our, our culture, we have a, we air quote, Christian, Christian culture, right? And if you had to boil God down, which is what this culture tends to do, what would you say? God is love. Right? That's what the, it's, it's almost a catchphrase. It's a bumper sticker. Infinite God, all glory and grandeur and honor, we're going to reduce him down to a bumper sticker. Yes, he is love. But he's more than that. He's just. And in his justness or holiness, um, there is also an element of wrath and anger against sin. Okay? Uh, Romans 11.22 would say, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of of God. Now, in context, it's talking about um, God cutting off the natural Jews and including the Gentiles. Okay, you have both the goodness, the mercy that He's going to show on some, and the severity that He's going to show on others. All right. So, what we have to focus on today is the severity. We have to focus on wrath. We have to focus on anger against sin. This is righteous anger. This is not like your and my wrath where our passions are lifted up and we're not thinking clearly and we're just lashing out, right? That's that's tend to be how I get angry. You know, be angry and sin not. It's possible to be angry and not sin. God can do it. You and I struggle mightily at it, right? We tend to allow it to be an emotional reaction rather than when Jesus was angry in the temple, he was righteously indignant that they had turned his father's house into basically a marketplace. You had all the sacrifices you had to make at that time under the law, and so you had the guys selling pigeons and doves and everything else you needed to sacrifice, so it was convenient. It was like a convenience store for the temple. And, oh, you don't have the right money? That's okay. We've got the money changers over here, and for a small fee, we will uh, take care of it for you. Everything's convenient. You can just worship God with a bare minimal effort. Any of that sound familiar? All right? And what did Jesus do? He got angry, and he took a scourge, he made a little thong of cords, and started driving them out. Flip their tables over. Right? He was angry, but he didn't sin. Okay? So what I want to look at this morning is I'm going to look at the clause in Exodus uh, 34, 6 and 7. Um, one we didn't focus on last time. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is Remember our context is that Moses has been put in the cleft of the rock. God's covered him with his hand. And he's going to remove his hand. He's going to see his goodness and glory pass by. And God is going to declare his goodness as he passes by. And the Lord passed by. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will be by no means clear the guilty. And that clear means to acquit. You go into a court and you're acquitted, it means you were found not guilty. You, you didn't do it. Right? You and I are all guilty. So how can you have it both ways? How can you have the forgiveness but still not 
quitting. Well, that was what we looked at last time. If the only way that can happen is if somebody paid the price for that sin. Somebody had to pay the punishment. Okay? He will not acquit the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. So I want you to go forward with me to Deuteronomy 31. We would spend a little time looking at Deuteronomy 32, uh, 4, right? Remember? Um, he is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. Remember the context of this is a song that God gave to Moses and he was going to teach it to the people right before Moses is going to die. Okay? His time is over. He is served. You know, he was 80 years old when they came out of Egypt. He's now lived another 40 years. They've gone through the period in the wilderness. Everyone who wouldn't go into Canaan when they were told to has now died. There's a new generation. And God is telling them in advance, y'all are going to corrupt yourselves and y'all are going to go an evil way and here's what I'm going to do in advance. And he's telling them that so they know that it was him doing it and not just chance or not somebody else's gods. He's declaring it hundreds and hundreds of years before it come to pass. So if you look right before that in Deuteronomy 31, let's see, verses 20, start in verse 24. Then Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the... Or let's start in yeah, 24. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished. That was one of the last things Moses had to do. He'd been given all this law. He had to write it down. He wrote it in a book, and then it was finished. He commanded the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, Take this book of the law, put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be a witness against you, to testify against you for when you break it, basically. For I know, this is Moses speaking, I know thou art thou, I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? He's like, I've already seen y'all rebel against the Lord numerous times in the incident with the calf, at times of complaining about the food and needing meat instead of just the manna, water in the wilderness, over and over and over. He said, I've seen you, and I'm still alive, leading you. And they feared him. What? How bad is it going to be after I'm dead? Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in your ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death ye will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way that I have commanded. And evil will befall you in the latter days because ye will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Sin provokes the Lord to anger. That word provoked to anger, that's all one word in Hebrew. It means to be indignant. And the image that we'll see with God's anger or wrath is that of coals or fire. That they'll stoke hotter and hotter against them. Okay, But this sin is an abomination against God. He hates sin. He is a God of truth, without iniquity, no iniquity within Him, and sin provokes Him to anger. Okay, There is wrath in your God. There is wrath against sin. Anger and wrath. So go forward to Deuteronomy 32. All right? We'll read just briefly to pick back up where we were before. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear the earth. This is the song that God gave Moses to, to speak to him. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine will drop as the rain, my speech will distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and the showers upon the glass, grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he. Starting looking at God, now it's going to look at man. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people, and unwise? Is he not thy father that hath bought thee, and hath he not made thee, and established thee? All right, for sake of time, I'm going to jump down. All right? One of your homework assignments is read all of Deuteronomy 32. Okay? Jump down to verse 15. Okay? But Jeshurun, or Israel here, Jerusalem, Israel, but Jeshurun, 
as waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxed fat, you've gone, basically gone rich and, and blessed. Thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. So this song is going to be a literal prophecy about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. After they go into this land, they're going to be so blessed and then they're going to forsake him. Okay? They're going to forsake who? The God which made him, the nation and the individuals, and lightly esteem the rock of his salvation. Do any of y'all ever lightly esteem the rock of your salvation? I know I'm guilty of that. When Christ is our rock, and we don't hold him in high enough regard in our life, when we don't follow his commands, when we don't seek him in prayer, we're holding him in light esteem. When we're putting our wants and desires and lusts of the flesh before what we know to be right, we're holding him in light esteem. Verse 16, They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. So you've got one, you've got idolatry that they're going to get into. And the idol, you and I may feel like, well, we're not bad like them. We don't have things carved out of stone or, or wood or whatever. We're not bound down to it. But what are you sacrificing your time, your energy, your love and affection towards? Whatever you're doing more and caring more about than God, that's an idol. It is taking the place of God in your heart. You're to love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, body, everything you got. And so if there's anything above that role, that's an idol. So here they are literally going to bow down to these idols. It says, you provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not unto God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods came newly up, whom your fathers knew not. Of the rock that begat thee, Thee or formed thee, thou art unmindful. Thou hast forgotten the God that formed thee. Right? Remember the God that formed Adam right? in the garden. He made him like the potter. He made him out of the dust. He formed it. He is your creator, and you've forgotten him. You're unmindful of your creator. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them. The Lord to abhor something is not a small thing. He needs to hate, to despise, to reject. Because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very froward, not forward, but froward, which means perverse, generation. Children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. You know what that's referencing? That's referencing Gentiles. That's a prophecy pointing to how God is going to take a people who are not a people. They're all spread out and diverse. They're not like Israel where it's just one race. He said, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy with these people who are not a people. This is the whole family of God. So this is pointing even here, way back in Moses' day. They just got the law. It's still one of those little glimpses to how God had a people that was beyond just natural Israel. Okay? For a fire is kindled in my anger. Here's this imagery of firing and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundation of the mountains. Is that not terrifying? This is not your and my little popping off, pitching fits when we get angry. This is something deeper. This is a smoldering that you cannot even really imagine. But this is the wrath of the Almighty God against sin against iniquity, against perversity. He says, I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend mine arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger, sending famine, devoured with burning heat, scorching them so your crops can't grow. With bitter destruction, I will send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents of the dust. God controls animals. He sends lions out at times to slay people who had come into Israel right, after they'd gone into captivity. The sword without... So this is referring to when they're going to be held in siege. There's going to be surrounded about them. There'll be swords without and terror within. The fear and also the fighting that's going to go on within a siege. 
shall destroy both young man and the virgin, the suckling also of the man of gray hairs. It, there's no respecter persons. There's no one who's going to escape. Okay. All right, and for the sake of time, I'm going to jump down again, down to verse 30. How should one chase a thousand and put two to ten thousand to flight? So if you've got a thousand men out there, this is the imagery, and you come up against one foe, your thousand turns around and runs. So how does that happen? How does it happen? Except their rock had sold them, and God had shut them up. The Lord had shut them up. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is as the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, and their clusters are bitter. Saying the, the vines, the things that are going to be produced out of them, what comes out is gall and bitterness. Sin is iniquity. Sin, the wages of sin is death. All right? Their wine is as the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of as, as asp. Excuse me, can't talk. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? This is part of his treasures. The Lord can open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessings. But within his treasures, he can also pour out great wrath. Verse 35, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. To recompense means to repay. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the hand of their calamity, for the day of their calamity is at hand. The things shall come upon them, make haste, for the Lord shall judge his people. And repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. So he's going to call them out of saying, You depended on other things. Call on them now. You're in trouble. Call on them. Let them help you. See now that I... Even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there anything that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. He's unique. He has that power. No one else. But I want you to listen to this imagery that comes after this. This It's not something that you will hear if you're just talking about a God of love. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies. God has enemies. And will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood. And my sword shall devour flesh, that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of the revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Just like we talked about last time about those who chooses to put mercy upon, who describes as his people... And those who he doesn't, who he describes as his enemies and his adversaries. And all those adversaries, you know what? They hate him. To be dead in trespasses and sins, to be in the carnal mind, is to be at enmity with God. Enmity is a very strong word for hatred. Like a warfare. You're opposed to God. There's nothing that you love or desire about him. You only love and desire yourself. Okay, but this is very strong imagery about the Lord who will take vengeance. Talking about wetting a sword, sharpening a sword, and having his arrows drunk with blood. You ever read you know, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, The Sinners in the Hand of Angry God? It was the last like religious thing I read in public school. And, and he was uh, notoriously a very like monotone speaker. But he used a lot of the imagery that was within Scripture to point out how great and magnet the magnitude of God's wrath is against sin and against sinners. Okay? So is this fun to think about? No. Certainly not. Should it cause terror? Probably should. We should fear our Lord. Not with a fear that He's going to come down and squash us, but with a recognition that He is holy and righteous in His judgment. 
And that we deserve this judgment. And it's by understanding the magnitude of His wrath that you then get to see the true depth of the mercy that He shows upon you. Okay? If you don't have a God of wrath who cannot stand and will not abide sin to go ignored or unpunished, if you don't have that peace, you cannot then appreciate what Christ really did. If God could just look away, He could have just looked away. But that would not be God. That would be defeating His own character, which He won't do. He doesn't change. And so we have to understand the magnitude as best we can. We have to learn about the magnitude of God's wrath and how pure and righteous and holy it is and how much He hates sin. Sometimes you and I can convince ourselves, well, this is a little sin. It's not that big, is it? God hates sin. It is contrary to Him. Okay? Proverbs 6, 16. Proverbs 6, verse 16. God is only a God of love. This verse couldn't be in the Bible. These six things doth the Lord hate. If you look at that word hate, it means exactly what you think it means. It means hate. Detests. These things that the Lord these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. They are vile. They're filthy. They're a reproach. And here they are. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord among his brethren. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through each of these areas of sins, but notice the imagery here that it captures your whole body, whether it's your eyes and your look and how you're governing yourself or what you're thinking about or what you're doing with your hands or your feet. All of us are entirely corrupted. That's what it means to be totally depraved, to be dead in trespasses and sins. And so God's enemies, those who He has passed over, this is the consumption of them. It's the totality. It's the proud look. Why is someone proud? Because they're lifting up. And who are they lifting themselves up higher than? God. If you and I are truly proud, we're lifting ourselves higher than God. We're exalting ourselves. Okay? God hates that. Because that's a lie. It's failing to recognize who is actually the king, the ruler, the sovereign. Right? A lying tongue. God cannot lie. It's not a man that he can lie or repent. You cannot lie and please him. He hates it. Hands that shed innocent blood. There's a you notice that's not just shedding blood. It's innocent blood. There's a time when judgment is brought down, and it can be at the hands of men. You can read that over in Romans about the role of governors and kings and government is to provide judgment, and justice. And so there is a time when you can shed blood and it not be wrong. But here it's shedding innocent blood. The, the, those who have not committed the crime and been found guilty, it's those who were innocent. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Jesus would say a lot about the heart, right? He was getting flack from the Pharisees about, well, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? They're going to defile themselves. And what did he tell him? He told him that you're not going to be defiled from what comes into your body. Right? It's what comes out of your body, out of your heart that defiles the man. Because out of your heart comes all the wickedness, all the murders and lies and deceits, adulteries. They all come out of the heart. Okay? A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. All right, so we're just going to... Leave that for today. Y'all can read that this week. That's that's bonus. Chew on it. But these things are things that the Lord hates. Alright, I want you to go to Psalm 58 to look at the Lord's promise that will happen 
to the wicked. There's a destruction promised. Psalm 58. Do you indeed speak righteously, O generation? Do you judge uprightly, O you sons of men? Yea, in heart ye work wickedness. Wicked heart devise in imaginations. In heart ye work wickedness. Ye weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. We have a whole other conversation about total depravity. and that There is no innocent. From the time of conception, you and I are born an unclean thing, full of sin. That is our nature. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth their ears, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so sweetly. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. I don't know if you've ever seen an animal documentary about lions or whatever, but the old lion, when he starts to get um, weaker or whatever in his fight, he'll have one of these big old great teeth. Those are kind of flopping over. Right? You know that he's not as strong as he used to be. Those teeth are a symbol of power and of might and the ability to conquer others. And so the Psalms is here saying, Break their teeth, O Lord. Break out the great teeth of the young lions. Not just from old age, but break them when they're in their power. That the, distinct, the, the, the distinct wickedness that God can break it. Let them melt away as waters which run continually. When he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows, let him be cut in pieces. So he's drawing back his arrow. This is the imagery of the wicked. He's going to shoot his arrow to hurt somebody. He says, let him be cut down. Let him be cut before he can release his arrow. As the snail which melteth. If you ever put salt on a slug or snail, it doesn't go really well for him. That's the imagery there. As the snail which melteth. Let every one of them pass away like the untimely birth of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind both the living and in his wrath. Now I was confused about what this pot and thorn imagery is and it took me reading through the whole Bible to finally understand that metaphor. But apparently, if you will boil um, water and you're using thorns uh, for your fire, the water in the, thorns and the thorns is going to evaporate. It's going to cause a popping noise. And so what this is saying is, is before your pots can feel the thorns, so before your pots start shaking because those thorns are popping from evaporation, that's when he's going to come away. Come in. Suddenly... He's going to have his day. And he's going to have his wrath upon them. He will, feed, he will take them away as with the whirlwind, both the living and in his wrath. The righteous, shall, the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. This is some harsh, 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 harsh imagery. But at that time, on that last judgment day, when you and I are no longer clouded by our own thoughts, our own um, feeble imaginations about the way things ought to be, and you can see God's righteousness and His judgment perfectly, you'll be rejoicing and that He is a righteous and holy God is pouring out His wrath upon those who deserve it. You'll rejoice. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judges in the earth. He's a God of judgment. And he will judge. And if Christ's blood is not paid for you, it will be a terrible day. In his wrath and anger, it will be poured out. Now, don't be confused that just because he hasn't come and wiped out the... Um, wicked immediately that it won't come. Scripture is full of the Lord delaying His judgments. Jonah was so upset that God didn't wipe out Nineveh. It happened. It happened later. But He delayed it. Right? In Romans um, 9.22-24 says, Romans 9.22 What if God willing to show His wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering. Slow to anger, long suffering, right? Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. What if he was willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Now, the context in this in Romans 9, you can go read that, that's another bonus one, is the potter. The potter who has control over the clay. He can make a vessel fitted for wrath and one who's fitted for, for glory. All right? 
In both, He gets to demonstrate His glory. One in His mercy, and one in His wrath. And He's enduring with the vessels of wrath, not immediately wiping out, because He's going to be long-suffering. At that time, in that last judgment, it's going to be a full display of His wrath, making His power known. And at the same time, He's going to make the riches of His glory displayed in the vessels of mercy, which He hath afore prepared unto glory, chosen out. Even us, of whom He hath called not only the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So there may be a delay, but it's for God's glory that He delays it. So he's not like men in that, okay, I didn't deal with the uh, crime that my child committed and therefore I'm going to later forget about it and we'll just have to wait till it comes up again to remind me, of, oh yeah, I was supposed to. No, it's not that way. It's not that he's forgotten. It's not that he didn't see. It's not that you've hidden it just because the hammer didn't come down immediately. Now, as a child of God, you will not have that full hammer come down on you. And the chastening that you'll receive is the chastening of a father to a son. And those are in love and for your best interest that you will be sanctified and be made more like his son. <clears throat> That's a very different thing than the full, unmitigated release of God's wrath to display the strength of his power and his righteous indignation against sin. Okay? As we talked about last time, there is patterns throughout Scripture that are pointing to that that grand finale, that day of judgment. Uh, if you look back at 2 Peter, you'll see um, these patterns of destruction. Some are on small scale, some are on a grand scale that are you know, foreshadowing to what will come. 2 Peter, let's start in verse... 2 Peter chapter 2, let's read verse 1 to get into it. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Right. Saying there's going to be false teachers, they're going to have a destruction against them, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. There are going to be folks who believe the false teachers. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be even evil spoken of. There are going to be those who claim to be followers of Christ who are going to speak evil of the truth of the gospel. Does that happen today? Yeah. And through covetousness, desire for money, they with feigned words will make merchandise of you. Every time I see you know, somebody on TV with a little number, you know, send their money here for planting seeds or whatever. They're making merchandise of God's people to take their money for covetousness. These are the false teachers, right? Make merchandise of you, whose judgment of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not, saying it's not going to be that much longer in God's eyes. Four, if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved under the judgment. And, verse 5, spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay? So, this is what I want to look at this morning a little bit, is the flood. Now, this is a pattern that God is going to use to point towards the final judgment about Him destroying what's described as the old world. And He brings in the flood upon whom? The ungodly. Okay? And so, you should know that that's back in Genesis chapter 6. Right? Now, as a reminder that we're not following cunningly devised fables, if you go back to chapter 5, you get the genealogy of every man that lived from Adam down to Noah. Okay? With that, and knowing that it was Noah was 600 years old when the flood finally came, and doing the math there, it's given intervals. If you just had when Adam, how old he lived and died, and had how old his son died, you wouldn't know how much time had transpired. But because God not only gives how old they were when they died, but how old they were when their son was born, you can take those intervals and you can add them up. Okay, So Noah was born at 1,056 years. Since the beginning of the earth, 1,056 years. He was 600 years old when the flood came, so that was the year 1656, starting from zero. Okay? There's nothing magic or crazy about that. That's just looking at the numbers that God gave between all those individuals. Does that take a little bit of pencil? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. That's studying. That's going beyond just kind of glazing through, okay, 
These are genealogies. These are boring. It's not fun to read begats. I can't pronounce that guy's name. Is there anything else we can glean from it? Yes. It takes a little effort. So that was Genesis chapter 5. We get into Genesis chapter 6. All right. And it came to pass when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise of all they chose. Now, I've seen some really crazy explanation about who these sons of God were versus the daughters of men. My best understanding of this is this is not angels or anything crazy like that. It's a description between, go back to Genesis chapter 5, and you get this genealogy. It goes, Adam, who comes next? Seth. Who's ignored there? Cain. Cain still exists. Cain's built a city. He's not been allowed to be a farmer anymore. It's just the earth won't curse you out, so he had to go be an urbanite. Right? He built the first city, and you've got these generations that are following under Cain. He has been rejected because he killed his own brother. He's been cast out. He's been banished. God didn't allow anybody to kill him. And so my best understanding is the sons of God are those who are following Seth's genealogy, and the daughters of men are those who are following Cain. Okay? Got those who are those who are serving God and those that weren't in general terms. But they became to intermingle, and everybody was wicked. Okay? And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. I've also seen that. Oh, it's you know, man can't live past 120 years after this point. No. Go look at the genealogies. Everybody who's mentioned is going to live past 120 years, down to Joseph. Right? Pretty far forward. Okay, so it's got to mean something else. Um, and what I bless my best understanding is it means this is the marker that God's saying 120 years, then the flood's coming, and I'm not striving with this generation anymore. They're done. Okay? And so that would come when Noah was 600 years old. The flood would actually uh, be delivered. Uh, his son, first son Shem, was born when Noah was 502. And you can get that again from the various genealogies, and I won't spend any more time on that, but don't take just what people will say in summary and assume it to be true without doing their own digging and testing it. That's what those Bereans were doing. They were checking to see what Paul was talking about when he came and said the Christ is like this and here's where you see it in the Old Testament. They were going and checking to see if such things were so. And not just at that one verse, but making sure across all the arc of them it makes sense. It's easy to distort things if you just look at one verse and out of context and isolation. People do that dramatically. I was reading an article on there. Is uh, homosexual really an abomination? Is that, is, that, is that really that? And the whole article was trying to say no. Huh? We'll leave that there. All right? But taking one thing and twisting it because you're trying to make it say whatever you already think. All right? So there were giants in the earth in those days. And after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children unto them. The same became mighty men who were of old men of renown. And you'd see those mighty men... Uh, in the days of, of David, right? There were mighty men who did some pretty miraculous um, feats of valor. I mean, killing 100-plus dudes with like a jawbone. Right? Was Samson, but there's also somebody, I believe, in David's day who did that as well. Mighty men. And God saw, listen to this, and God saw the wickedness of man was great. Just as the Lord is abundant in mercy and long-suffering, the same word there, great. It was abundant. The wickedness of man was abundant in the earth. That every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every imagination. Imaginations the contrivances, schemes, what he's coming up with. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, this verse will, will cause you to stumble. Because over uh, in Exodus, say the Lord cannot lie, neither can he repent. Right? So how do you reconcile the two? My best understanding of this is that the Lord doesn't change, but he can be very displeased with his creatures. And he can change courses so that whatever's going along now can be stopped. The same way that a potter, when he makes that pot and decides it's not to his fitting, can bring his hammer down on it and he can reform it. Right? So he is not changing, but he was very displeased. His wrath and his uh, adversity against sin is in full display here. Because all their thoughts were of evil. All right? It grieved him at his heart. I think these are words that we would use to describe how we would interact. 
but it's just trying to help us understand about how displeased God was with this sin that was so rampant. Okay? And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. As the creator here, as the potter here, I'm going to destroy from the face of the earth, both man and beast. So from every beast all the way up to man. Anything that breathes air is going to be killed. And the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. I'm no longer going to put up with what they have done, what they have become. Okay? Often, when we think about the story of the flood, we only want to focus on Noah and the eight people in the ark. And if you worry about children's books that you know take summaries of these things, they'll ask questions. Oh, what about the children on the ark? What did they think? There were no children. Right? It was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And the sons, the oldest one, was nearly 100 years old. So they ain't children yet. They were born after the flood. So again, another one of those things of why we have to be careful about these summaries of things that other people put out who are not careful to read the actual word. Um, and you and I as parents and grandparents need to be on guard of making sure that we're teaching truth not passing on conjecture or legends or any other form of you know, mischaracterization. All right? I'm tangenting in. I apologize. All right? I will destroy man. So we talk about the flood and we think about Noah and we think about the ark and all the work they went to it, building it, and hundred some odd years of building and they're safe in there with all the animals. That's great to think about. But what you and I have to think about is what's going on outside the ark. When he brings the rains and he breaks the fountains of the earth, Every human on the planet would drown. This is not going to be a pleasant, sudden process. Terror and agony. And in our our human self, we kind of want to go, No! But God is just in all His ways. His works are perfect. And His righteous wrath against sin is perfect, even if you and I can't really understand that fully. It is. He was right to do that. And that is just a small, small glimpse to the wrath that will come. Because that was only against those who were still alive right then. The grand finale on that last judgment day is going to be pouring out the wrath on all of humanity except for those who He had chosen. And His divine mercy, when I have mercy on Him, I will have mercy, who ever lived. And in their glorified bodies, they'll endure that wrath for eternity. That's the scale that we're dealing with. But this, this one you know, glimpse here is pointing to that. And we'll finish it up. Um, these generations of Noah, begat Shem, Ham, Japheth, Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. Even here, it's going beyond man. It's saying the earth itself is corrupt and filled with violence, with wickedness. It's going to wipe it off like a dish that you run through the the dishwasher. All the filth and everything. Start over. Even that points to that grand finale about how he's going to burn it and he'll have his perfect creation. There will be no iniquity. Alright? And the Lord looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And Noah and God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay? And then he gets his instructions. Alright, so for your, your homework, you get to read Genesis 5, even the begats. Through Genesis 9. Okay? You get the whole story there of the ark. I don't have time to, to spend all, all of it, but given this little lead into it, I want you to read it and chew it and actually think about it as if you were there. Okay? Now I want to go forward now for the sake of time to Job chapter 22. Even Job, which we know is written after the flood because he references the flood. Job 22. Verse 15 and 17, this is one of the miserable comforters, Eliphaz. Job 15, uh, 22, 15. Hast thou not marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? <coughs> Path of the old. The old, just because it's old doesn't mean it's better. The old way which wicked men have trodden, of the old world, right? 
which were cut down out of time, whose fountain was overflown, overflown with a flood, which said unto God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? That was one of the things that was going on in the earth. That was one of the things they were saying, is unto the Almighty, depart from us. We don't need you. Do y'all see that in this day? Yes. What do you mean, God? What is that? Who's He that I should obey the Lord? Depart from us. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to have my own truth. I'm going to have my own way. I am my own God. So this provoking to anger, you see it on this grand scale here over the whole earth at the flood. It would often come upon Israel, the nation, in a smaller scale, just against that nation, when they would provoke him to anger. Go to Judges 2. Judges 2. Alright? So Moses has died. Joshua is given the charge of the people. He's got to go in, fight the battles to uh, conquer the land. He does that for you know a portion of the land. Eventually he gets old. He was 110. And he died. Alright? Joshua 2. And ten, and all that generation that was with him died too. And also all the generation were gathered together under their fathers. It's a nice way of saying they died. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Balaam. Balaam was a false god, an idol that was within the land already. They're following the pattern of those who are still there. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them. Peer pressure, right? Hey, they're doing well. They've got this God. Let's take that God. Maybe we'll do well too. All right, verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers. These are enemy invaders. That spoiled them. That took their stuff sold them in the hands of their enemies round about so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Okay? That was the consequence that he did there of having a destruction come upon them because his anger waxed hot. It wasn't an arbitrary anger. right? It was justified in that they forsook him and they started serving these false gods. They forgot the God that brought them out of Egypt. All right? Just look for another few examples here. We'll see later in time, after the period of the Judges, about 400 years, and you got Samuel, that gives, uh, the first king is crowned, it's going to be Saul. Going forward, you've got David, and then Solomon, then Solomon's son, Rehoboam. He uh, you know, has the kingdom split from him. We'll just leave that for the sake of time. He has the kingdom split. He gets two tribes, the rest go to the northern kingdom, which is going to be given to a guy, given by God to a guy named Jeroboam. So you got Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, and God is going to pronounce judgment against Jeroboam because Jeroboam brings back the golden calf. Two this time. Hey, one was good back in Egypt or in the days out of Egypt. Let's do two. And the reason he did that was he didn't want his people in the northern kingdom to go where they were told to go for the annual sacrifices. Three times a year they were supposed to go down to Jerusalem. Well, he said, Here you what? I got two golden calves. I'll put one in the north part of my kingdom, one part in the south part. During these feasts, I'm going to make similar feasts about the same time. Y'all go worship here. That way you don't go down to the southern kingdom because he was afraid that they would lose their allegiance to him. And so he caused them from the very beginning of his reign over these northern tribes, the ten tribes, to go astray into idolatry. And so God is going to pronounce a judgment against Rehoboam. First Kings chapter 14. And I'm just going to read verse 9, given all that background. All right. First Kings. Chapter 14, verse 9. But hast done evil. It's talking about Jeroboam. Thou hast done evil above all that were before thee. For thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back. His sin of abandoning God provokes God to anger. And he's described as casting God behind his back. How often do you and I go our own way and cast God behind our back. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't care. I would rather do this. This is more important to me. I'm casting him behind my back. That's what Jeroboam did. He provoked the Lord to anger. And then you can see after that, and you can read the rest of chapter 14 for your homework as well, that he is going to cut off Jeroboam's household. And not just a little bit, 
But every male is going to be taken out in his righteous judgment for how Jeroboam has led them astray. Okay? Jump forward to 2 Kings 17. This is going to be the end of that kingdom. So that's the very beginning of the northern kingdom called Israel. The very end of that kingdom is when they're going to go into captivity by the Assyrian uh, Empire. This is 2 Kings chapter 17. And there is going to be uh, judgment pronounced against him. This is 2 Kings... Chapter 17, starting in verse 5. Then the king of Assyria came up through all the land and went up to Samaria, that's the capital city of Israel, and besieged it three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away and, uh, into Assyria and placed them in Halah and Habor by the rivers of Gozaz and the cities of the Medes. So he comes in, he conquers, he takes the people, he moves them up north and sets them there. Blop. All right. Verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. They'd sinned against them, they'd feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathens, the laws and the rules and the ways of the heathens round about them. That's how they chose to walk, rather than the law that God had given them. Whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. Secretly. God can see. He's the all-knowing God. He's the everywhere God. He can see. There is no secret that can be hiding. Yes, we will still try to have our secret sins. He sees them. Right? They did the secretly those things which are not right against the Lord. They built them high places in their cities from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. And they set up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord had carried away and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. I want to take one proverb and look at it real briefly. You may feel like this is kind of uh, random. But as I was reading it, 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 it made more sense to me this time than ever before. This is Proverbs 20 and in verse 2. Proverbs 20 and 2 says, The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whosoever pro- provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. What do you think it means that the fear of the king is as the roaring of a lion? Roaring of a lion. If you and I hear a roaring of a lion, what is that to you and me? That's a warning, right? There's a lion around. I need to be careful. I might even need to get out of here. It's a warning, right? I'm not eating yet, but I hear a roaring. The fear of the king is the same thing. It's a warning. Your fear of the king should warn you, should give you caution. Whosoever provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. So if I go up to this lion after I've heard him, and I take a stick and I go, poke, and then I get eaten, I'm sinning against my own soul. It's my own stupidity. The fear of the great king is a warning. It should control and govern us. Because when we provoke him to anger with our sin, we're putting our own selves in danger. We're sinning against our own Okay. Now, you will probably hear, if you're talking with this to someone about the God of wrath and anger, say, well, that's just the Old Testament God. Does God change? No. Go to the New Testament. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I want verses 5 and 6. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. This is talking about your bodies. All of your body, eyes, hands, feet, heart, mind, mortify therefore your members, which means to kill, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Ooh, do you know that? Loving of things or people. Coveting things is a form of idolatry. It is idolatry. Verse 6. For which things sake... The what of God? The wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Same God. Still hates sin. 
doesn't change. And the wrath. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. There's a wrath. The wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Okay? And you'll see uh, in Revelation uh, 6 and 14 the reaction of men to when that wrath is revealed. Revelation 6, verse 14, The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island moved out of their places and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captain and the mighty men and all the bondmen and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And the answer is, no one. No one. Now, unless you get confused and say that, well, I've got my sin, it's a secret sin, yes, okay, God knows it, um, but I'm not really hurting anybody. Right? We, in our culture, we get more upset when people injure someone else, right? Well, that's just a crime against himself, it's not really a big deal. Right? Who are they hurting? Well, when you sin, you're sinning directly against God. You're offending God. You're um, antagonizing, if you will, God. This is, I want to pull this out of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, I'm confessing them, and my sin is ever before thee, he can see it, there's nothing hidden, against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Who are you sinning against? You're sinning against God. Now you go read the, the context of this psalm, and this is when Nathan has come to David about the incident with Bathsheba. <coughs> And murdering Uriah. There are a lot of other people that David injured and sinned against. But here it's saying, I sinned against God. Okay? And when you sin against God, you're sinning not only against the judge, you're sinning against the lawgiver, and you're sinning against the king. You see that in Isaiah uh, 33 and 32. But God is all those roles in our life. He gives the law, He judges us against it, and He is the king or the enforcer of it. This is Isaiah 33 and in verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And if it just stopped right there, you and I would be most, most miserable. He will save us. We can't put our hope in anything else other than God Himself. He will save us. But He is our lawgiver. That's a legislator. He's our judge. Hey, our, our government mirrors this. You've got Congress, which is your legislator. You've got the Supreme Court and your judiciary system as our judge. And then you've got the king, which is the executive, the enforcer of those laws. God is all three, and He is them perfectly. That's who you are sinning against when you sin. Right. I want you to go finally to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Come on, verses 30 and 31. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance, vengeance belongeth unto me. You read that earlier. But vengeance belongeth unto me. We know him that said that. Who's that? God. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Why is that so? Because God hates sin. He hates iniquity. He cannot stand it or abide it, and He will not allow it to be remained. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, there is great reason to fear our Heavenly Father. And that fear that I'm referring to is a reverential fear. But those who are not born again can't fear Him that way. They hate Him. 
and they will have a very different fear. Though they ignore it for now, and don't like to keep it in their minds, you can see that in Romans 1, there will be a very true, palatable, just mind-numbingly terror that will come when He comes in His wrath. And you will behold both the goodness and His infinite level of mercy and His severity and His infinite level of wrath. You have to have both. You have to understand both. If you just have one, you're missing the whole picture. Thank you. Your time.